Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When we talk about our God, who is a loving God, sometimes there can be a lot of confusion that results from that because people have different ideas concerning the subject of love. People have different ideas. You know, when we say that God loves you or that God loves people or that God loves the world, people hear that differently. They think differently because they have different ideas. They have different definitions. They have different concepts concerning love, what love is. How would you know if somebody loved you? How would you know if somebody didn't love you? This is a question that has to be asked because when we talk with people about the love of God, sometimes they have personal biases concerning this word love, and because of that, there can be a language barrier between us and individuals. I believe that the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus, defines the love of God, that it is definitely the place to start with a definition, and that all further definitions or ways of explaining his love can be built or have to be built on the subject of the gospel. The gospel, or the good news, is that our God looked at humanity and saw the hopelessness of humanity. He saw that we were in a condition that there was no hope outside of his mercy. And the good news is that he provided his mercy. He decided to be merciful. He forgave the sins of the world. That, to me, is an initial description, a very important description of the love of God that has to be considered, that we have to pay attention to. Now, the gospel is not just about the forgiveness of sins. It is also about the restoration of life. People are spiritually dead. We were born into this world spiritually dead, born into this world in the image of Adam, not in the image of God. When he created Adam and Eve, they certainly were in the image of God. And to talk about man in that context, certainly we are an image of God or a reflection of God. But according to the record that we have concerning the sons of Adam, and those who have been born since, we know that we are born in the image of Adam, not in the image of God, that we are in a condition of being spiritually dead. That means that we do not have the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. But the good news, this part of the gospel, the good news, is that our God has offered to us the spirit of life that was lost in Adam so that we can be resurrected right now and today. Now, it is my sincere belief that his love was first expressed according to the gospel, was first expressed through his forgiveness, that he decided to provide forgiveness, mercy, and he did so graciously. I believe that that describes the character of God, the love of God. And he has also provided people with a way to be saved. You see, just because a person is forgiven, that doesn't mean they're automatically saved. That just means that they're forgiven, But according to the law of sin and death, they are still a bunch of forgiven dead people. They need to be resurrected. Now, who is going to be resurrected and who is not going to be resurrected? 
Well, our God has called out to the entire world and he has offered the entire world, everyone throughout the entire history of humanity, our God has offered to everyone the free gift of the life of God, the Holy Spirit that was lost in Adam. Unfortunately, not everybody's interested in that. Not everyone wants to receive that. Not everyone wants to even acknowledge that there is a God at all. So does this mean that his love has failed? That he has failed to love people enough? I don't see that. I don't think so. I believe that he loves so much that he provided people a way out if they were willing to take the way out, if they were willing to receive it. If you are willing to receive the free gift that he is offering, then he has provided you a way out. He has provided you a way to enter into his kingdom in heaven. But if you don't want it, if you choose not to take it, and because of your choice, you spend eternity separated from your God, does that mean he doesn't love you? Does that mean that he's not loving, that he would allow you to suffer in whatever way you end up suffering for eternity without your God? Does that mean that he didn't love you enough? Does that mean that he doesn't love you even now or then because he may not let you out of there? He may actually allow you to stay there throughout all eternity. Does that mean that there's something wrong with the love of God? Well, there are some people who believe that. They believe that that is unacceptable, that that does not reflect the kind of love that they want from a God. But I believe that his love was already expressed, that his love is not determined by whether or not he's going to let somebody escape an eternal judgment that they chose, that they decided that they would receive because they decided to refuse what he was offering that he has failed in some way because of that or he doesn't love them enough, I don't see that. I really believe that the love of God has been explained clearly. It has been explained clearly through the gospel and that we must trust that what he has said is true and not try to justify our own opinions concerning what we think our God should do if he's going to satisfy our, our, definitions concerning what love is and what it isn't, but that he is the one who defines these things. You know, when it comes to dead things, if you were to go out into the park or across the street or even just in your lawn, if you were to look around, you probably would be able to find a stick on the ground at some point. You'll be able to find a stick. And let's assume that this stick is dead. It's a dead stick. The bark is peeling off. You can tell that there's just simply no life in this stick at all. Now, would we accuse someone of being unloving towards that stick if they decided to set that stick on fire? Do you think that that would be an unloving act towards that dead stick? Of course not. Well, people in this world who have been born into this world who have not been saved through the gospel are not much different than those dead sticks. And so for God to burn these dead people or dead sticks... I wouldn't consider that to be any more unloving than for you to pick up a dead stick, a real one, and set it on fire. To me, I don't, I don't understand how people can make a connection between dead people and living people when you consider the difference between a dead stick and a living stick. There are some distinct differences. Now, of course, God can take that dead stick and he can resurrect it and make it into a new tree of some kind, and that can be a loving act. 
But if he doesn't do that, if he decides not to do that, do we pass judgment on God and say God is evil? He hates that stick. He hates people. He hates his creation. He hates his sticks. He hates the things that he made. Absolutely not. No, we cannot do that. We cannot say that. If you want to, if you try to, I don't think that that is going to be received very well when you give this explanation to God when you see him. I really don't. I really believe that he is free to allow people to spend all eternity separated from him and suffering if that's the case. I believe that and that that is not a way to say that he is unloving in any way whatsoever. Now, this is very important because there are some passages in the scriptures that can sometimes be a little challenging because he does speak of people who he loves and he also speaks of people who he doesn't love, that he hates. And what does that mean? I mean, how could we say that he loves some people but he hates others? Well, there is an example of this found in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, I'm going to begin in verse 10. This is after the description of the promise that was made to Abraham and to Sarah concerning their son. In verse 10 it says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, what did he mean when he said that he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau? What did he mean by that, especially when it had nothing to do with what they did or with what they didn't do? It had nothing to do with their works at all. It had to do with a choice that God made. What does that mean? It's very easy to look at this and say, my goodness, God just chose to love somebody and hate somebody else without a cause at all. He just decided to hate somebody and there was no reason for it at all. It's very easy to make that assumption. I know that because I've heard a lot of people make that assumption. But I believe that this says something different. I really do. I believe that this says something different because there is a description here that is very common in Hebrew idiomatic expressions. This is an idiomatic expression that does not say that he hates some people and loves others. It means that he loves others, but that he loves others more to the extent where it would be as if he hated someone else. A good example of this is found in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 29, Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 30, where we have the description of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. In Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 30, it says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am loved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. In verse 34 it says, She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi or Levi. 
in verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. That wasn't the end of it. But I want you to see that she is having children. Now, this is not the kind of thing that takes place between a man and a woman when a man hates a woman. Not in the way that we're talking about. He doesn't hate Leah in such a way that he wishes that she was never a part of his life at all or that she didn't exist at all. That's not the kind of hatred that he had towards her. And it wasn't though he hated her at all. That wasn't the case. In verse 30, it says that he loved Rachel more than Leah. To say that he hated Leah or for Leah to assume that she was hated or for the Lord to see that she was hated in comparison with Rachel was to say that it was recognized that he did love Leah to an extent, but that he loved Rachel much more. In Luke, the Lord Jesus speaks of this idiomatic expression in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. In Luke, chapter 14, verse 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, does this mean that we're supposed to hate our fathers, our mothers, our wives, our children and brothers and sisters? Does this mean we're supposed to hate people? That we have to hate people so that we can be a disciple of Jesus? How can that be? How could he say such a thing when he would know full well that the Mosaic law required people to love their fathers and mothers, respect and honor their fathers and mothers, and that they were required to love their neighbors as themselves. They were not allowed to bear a grudge against anyone, especially their mothers and fathers and their children. He says very clearly, though, that you have to hate them, otherwise you cannot be his disciple. And so how do you reconcile the specific commandments that say that you are to love and not to hate, and yet he says, hey, is he teaching people to violate the Mosaic Law? Is that what he's saying? I am here to offer you an opportunity to be my disciple, but if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to break the Mosaic Law. Is, is that what he's saying? Is it, do you think that's what he's No, that's not what he's saying. He is saying that you must love your father and mother, You must love your brother and sister, your wives, your children. You must love, but that you must love him more than them if you are to truly be his disciple. So much so that it would be as if you hated them. It is a way of comparing magnitude when it comes to the subject of love and other subjects as well. It is a Hebraic idiomatic expression that is used to establish and define magnitude with respect to relationships and feelings and other things. It is a way of describing the magnitude and the intensity of various things. This is not an unusual way to say things in the Hebrew language or in the Hebrew culture, but it's very easy to miss this 
to not see this and to make other assumptions if you don't know that. If you don't know that, then it's very easy to miss that. That's why I'm referring to the passages that we have available to us in the Bible, Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 to 35, Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. They give very good examples concerning this, and so I really wanted to show you this, that the Lord our God does not hate some people and love others, but he does love some people and he loves others more. Now, how would he discriminate between loving some people but loving other people more? How would this be decided? How would he make such a decision, especially before they have an opportunity to really show what they're made of in terms of living in this world? How can he make those kinds of decisions? Well, I believe that we should always start with the gospel when talking about anything, especially something like this. According to the gospel, he has discriminated between people just because he has offered a free gift. By offering the free gift of the Holy Spirit, he has created a discrimination. He is discriminating between individuals. He is dividing individuals. He is dividing them into those people who will receive the free gift and those people who won't receive the free gift. And it is my sincere belief, it is my belief, I really believe this, that he loves those people who will not receive the free gift that he is offering, but that he loves more the people who will receive the free gift, that he does discriminate between the two, that he does See them as two different classifications of people, as two different categories of people. One group of people that he will never, ever have a relationship with, and another people who he can and will have a personal relationship with. And I believe that it is fully acceptable to say that God does love those people who he will never, ever have a personal relationship with, but that he will enjoy more and he will love more those people who he can have a personal relationship with. I don't see anything wrong with that to say that he loves some people, but that he loves some people more. It is my belief that that's what he's talking about. And he says this in the context of Esau and Jacob. Now, what would be his problem with Esau? What would be his problem with Esau? What did Esau eventually do that demonstrated to us that God would have, of course, known in advance? What did he do that demonstrated to us that perhaps he might not be the kind of person who would receive grace and mercy, who would appreciate the reconciliation that God would provide, who would receive the inheritance that our God wants us to have, that he has given to us in Christ Jesus. Is there any indication that Esau was the kind of person who would not be interested in the gospel? Absolutely. The example that we have is when Esau told Jacob that he was willing to give up his right as the firstborn. He was willing to give up his inheritance for a bowl of soup, for some food, just one meal, that to him... The inheritance was not as important as getting a meal and getting it right then and there. 
He believed that he was going to just die if he didn't eat something right then and there. Well, people don't die that way, especially when they're starving. It wouldn't have happened that way. There would have been some opportunity before he died, of course, before he could eat something, and then he would have been fine. That wasn't the issue. It was his attitude. It was the way that he looked at the situation. It was the way that he respected and honored his father. That was the problem. He did not consider the inheritance that his father would have given him to be of any significant value. Not in his heart. Not at that time. That was what discriminated between Jacob and Esau in the mind of God. Esau was a relatively independent individual. He could go out and he could make a living for himself. He could go out into the wild and he could hunt and he could acquire game and he could use that for his own personal benefit or he could trade that to help others and to increase the value of his wealth. He didn't necessarily need his father's inheritance. He was an independent individual in his own mind. There was no need for him to have an inheritance. There was no need for him to receive any mercy or any grace. He was an independent individual. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with being independent, and I do believe that it's a very important thing to pursue. But in this context, there is a problem, because the problem is that we have a manifestation of personal pride to the extent where he would not honor his father by not being the recipient of the inheritance and by considering it to be something that is not of any substantial value, something that is of less value than a single meal. Now, this is very important because when you consider the implications of the gospel and you realize that you have received the indwelling presence of your God within you, you will begin to discover the implications of that and you will discover who he is in your life what he has given to you above and beyond, just simple forgiveness, that he has given his love to you, he has given you so much more. You know, what he has given to us is described as an inheritance that we have received as a result of his death. That there was a will that was given, that was described, the will of God. It was the description of an inheritance that we would receive as a result of his death. And when he died on the cross... His will went into effect and the inheritance was given to his children. And our maturity in our relationship with our God can often be measured by our discovery of what we have received in Christ Jesus, what we have in Christ Jesus that is defined on the basis of an inheritance and how we live our lives with what we have received, how we apply in our daily lives what we have been given. A person's growth and maturity can often be measured by this. But when you look at Esau, an individual who was not interested in the inheritance, I want you to understand that I believe that this is the discriminating moment between Esau and Jacob, that Esau was not the kind of person who would welcome and honor an inheritance. But according to the gospel, our God is seeking people who are willing to embrace, take, and live with the abundance of the inheritance that he is offering to his children, that these are the kind of people that he wants. He wants this kind of person to have a personal relationship with. And while he will certainly love those who are not interested in what he has to offer, there is nothing wrong with saying that he will enjoy more and he will love more those who will be the recipients of what he has to offer. That is what I see when he speaks of the differences between Jacob and Esau. 
And this inheritance is not given on the basis of a person's obedience or repentance or whether they do good works or they don't do good works. It has nothing to do with that at all. It is only about grace and mercy. That's what it's about. It's about nothing else but that. So again, beginning in verse 11, this is Romans chapter 9, verse 11, it says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. You see, it's not about what you do or what you don't do. Continuing, it says, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works. It was never of works to have a relationship with him. It was never based on works. And in this case, it's not based on the works of Jacob or the works of Esau either. It is not about that. It says, but because of him who calls... And what is his call? His call goes out into the world according to the gospel that I am offering to you grace and mercy and the restoration of life and an inheritance. But if they are not the kind of person who would be willing to receive an inheritance and to live their lives according to it, well, yes, he will love them, but he's going to definitely love more those who are willing to take what he's offering, who are willing to take him. In verse 12, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. We could say again that this was unjust. We don't like the way this turned out. But we are not the ones who pass judgment on God. He is the one who defines how things will be. He is the one who loves, and he is the one who will love, as he says. So consider the reality that if you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have been resurrected, you are a child of God, and you need to recognize, you should recognize, that you are not like those who are in the world who have rejected God. You are different. He has discriminated between the saved and the lost. And while he certainly may love those who he will never, ever have a relationship with, I don't think it's unrealistic to say that he will love more those who he can have a relationship with, who he does have a relationship with. And so turn to him for who he is and recognize that he has reached out to you. And if you are the recipient of his grace and mercy, if you have embraced him for who he is, then enjoy the inheritance that he has given to you. Enjoy that and live according to that because that is what he loves. He loves you and he loves to see you live your life with the abundance of what you have. He enjoys participating in your life as you live it with him, just as he lives it with you. And together, great things result. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 
80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you, man.